0: The mood music in the industry, I think, is firstly, can we just have that richer mix of work? Yes, award the purpose stuff, but yes, find a way to the great stuff that pays the mortgage. But also, can we just make sure that we're not using our creative skills to greenwash, rather than using our creative skills to sort of more profoundly change business? Hello and welcome to The Media Leader Podcast.
1: I'm Jack Benjamin, coming to you from The Media Leader's brand new recording studio in our office in the heart of central London on St. Martin's Lane, just around the corner from Trafalgar Square. Joining us on today's episode is Lawrence Green. Lawrence is a regular columnist for The Media Leader, and in case you're somehow unfamiliar, he's an ad agency founder, advertising strategy expert, and now the Effectiveness Director for the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, also known as the IPA. Lawrence, hi, welcome. Uh, Tell us, what does being an IPA Effectiveness Director entail? What are you going to be doing, uh, and and why? Why is it important?
0: So I'll know more in a week or two. I start on uh, July the 4th, Independence Day. Uh, What I know so far is that the task is part continuity, part change, as it should be. So, I genuinely think the IPA is a world leader in certainly advertising effectiveness practice, but actually training and talent and a whole heap of other things. So it'd be weird to go in and um, smash it all up. (laughs) Uh, There's loads of stuff to build on and in in effectiveness particularly, I think that's the change from just being um, a kind of awards hotbed to something that is helping create effectiveness cultures right across the industry. So I'm actually judging the effectiveness accreditation this week, which is basically making sure that effectiveness is front and center in a business rather than something you inspect at the back end of a campaign. Mm. And that that seems to make perfect sense as the sort of next evolution of effective practice. So I'm looking forward to it. don't know exactly what it holds, but that's as it should be. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you have your your work cut out for you, and
1: I'm I'm sure it'll be a good time as well. Um, Also joining us on the podcast today is Omar Oakes, editor of The Media Leader and my boss. Omar, in your latest weekly column you asked what's the point of can lions really uh, if you allow me to turn that question around and ask you what is the point of can and if you need to ask why are you bothering to go there next week while I have to stay in London
2: <laughs> uh, punchy question to throw at your boss, uh, <laughs> as he as he, as he rightfully points out. No, I mean you can't avoid. Can can you? Can you avoid? Can it's you know it's the big global. in the calendar in the advertising industry I mean we have advertising week New York advertising week Europe in London but what event is there really that brings all these people from the US into Europe Mm -hmm. Um, it's a massive thing still for networking Um, the creativity we'll get into the creativity I mean the creativity still matters at least notionally the fact that we should be rewarding ad agencies, marketers, independent producers production companies on producing best-in-class work globally because different things mean good means different things in different markets that still matters i think the question is what are people actually doing there Mm. um as i as i pointed out in my piece you know there's 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 a world of difference in what goes on inside the palais versus outside on the marinas, the boats, the hotels, the bars, the restaurants etc. Um, it seems to me like if, if you didn't go inside the Palais you would think it's just a really big marketing, media and tech conference But mm. it's only once you go inside the Palais that anyone's actually talking about the work
1: mm. Lawrence, when was the last time you were you in Cannes last year or when was the last no, time you attended? I haven't
0: been for a few years and I'm not going this year and um, mm. you always make that decision because I have been invited, you make that decision uh, with a mix of uh, regret and relief. <laughs> uh, um, the regret bit is because you are there in person and you get to see the world's greatest work. And it, I think it is a really important reminder of what's possible. And you do... Um, it's genuinely thrilling to see the work being done in other markets. The, the relief is that you're not going to have that sort of punishing schedule of <laughs> drinking too much rosé, um, listening to too many sort of pr- privileged... DJs playing to, uh, <laughs> playing to empty dance floors. Um,
1: yeah. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit more because Omar, you mentioned, uh, that can, can look and feel a bit like a tech or a media conference, but it's sort of supposed to be celebrating creativity and marketing and advertising. Um, isn't that sort of a problem that there's a bit of a conflict there? Um, why are there such silos that exist in can, and does that speak at all to the silos that exist between creativity and media? across the rest of the industry. Um, Lawrence, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I think Cannes, just by its nature, is a microcosm of what's happened to our industry, right? So, um, you know, I'm a 33-year-old veteran of, of, in the game, and it was a simpler business. You know, when I started in 1988, creative agencies, media agencies, media, media owners, a pretty benign and predictable media ecosystem. And of course, in the last, 15 years at least that has been totally upended by meta and alphabet and advertising now means something very different you know it means search as well as social as well as the sort of time-honored brand campaigns that are still running across av and outdoor which themselves have changed so i think it's inevitable that those big players have landed they have deeper pockets they are global businesses almost by their nature in a way that many agencies still aren't so i think it it's an honest reflection of what's happened to the advertising industry, which is that the advertising industry is now more than just the business of creating short-form assets for brands. Mm. It's, a, it's a beast, and I think can accurately reflects that, and to Omar's point, get inside the palais and you re-engage with the, the work again, rather than just attending the big sales conference for big tech.
1: Mm. Omar, what's your sense from talking to people? What's the main value in them going to Cannes? Um, And is there an appetite among the industry to better integrate creative and media both at Can and outside of it?
2: Networking is the short answer. That might be obvious, but it is true. The theme of what I'm asking the people that I'm interviewing um, before, after, during CAN is why does CAN still matter to you slash your business Um, I'm setting up interviews with Sir Martin Sorrell uh, John Steinberg, the new CEO of Future, and yeah. um, Belinda Barker, who runs the World Media Group, and it's pretty consistent. Networking is the number one, the number two, and the number, re- number three reason why they're there. Um, I you know, say, so what about deal-making? What about appreciating creativity? What about learning? And, nah, it, networking, <laughs> networking is still really important. And interesting point about the deal-making, I mean, it, it might not be the place where the handshake happens, but it's probably the place where the meeting before the meeting before the handshake happens. So it's still incredibly important. Um, with regards to, you know, the silos of media and creativity, you know, it's interesting, Lawrence, you talk about 1988, you say, when you started this industry. Um, I think it was, was it, I forget now, was it 87 or 88 that um, Martin Sorrell, WPP, bought Jay Walter Thompson? I mean, that was a big moment for the industry because, you know, Sorrell didn't invent, but he, de- he definitely... Um, amped up the holding company model and that has a lot to answer for um, in terms of you know it was frankly more profitable to split you know ancient history lesson it all used to be in one building advertising and media mm. but it actually became more profitable for Sorrels and that later publicist omnicom to actually split up make more money from doing media services and creative services differently and at the same time Essential, the company that runs Can Lions, it suits them very well, doesn't it? To you know, split up the awards into different categories, which different agencies with different specialisms might want to go in for. And frankly, trade media. <laughs> uh, frankly, trade media, we, we benefit from it as well. Um, you know, something um, we'll get into maybe what Lawrence said at this Thinkbox conference recently, but um, you, you mentioned that. You know, twenty-eight out of the thirty-two Grand Prix last year were purpose-driven work. And it comes down to incentives, right? So right now, marketers, for whatever reason, we might get into it, are kind of commissioning lots of purpose-led work. So that's what's that's what's driving award entries. But it's also down to specialisms. Capitalism by its nature rewards specialisms. Mm. Um The more that we specialise, the more that this is going to happen, where you're going to have silos happen all over the place. And the bigger question is, in a world where it's harder to reach people because of fragmented media, because maybe people trust media, we might go into that later a bit less as well, Mm. it's harder to reach people, do you not need to have a more generalist outlook, not so many specialisms. And that's the kind of tide that we're, we're swimming
0: against, it seems. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the networking point I'm hearing at a more local level as well. Um, you know, after two and a half years of you know working from home and lunch and learns over Zoom, I think people are craving some human contact. So yeah. even if it is just a big networking event for people in this new, broader, advertising industry, then. So be it. I, I do think the work does get a chance to shine. If you're not at the festival, it's all about the work because because that's the that's the prism for for journalists and for planners and young creatives and account people who are who want to know what good looks like because it's in relatively short supply except it can when it's in oversupply.
1: Mm. Do Do you remember uh, any of the ads that that were that won awards last year? I mean, you talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, purpose-driven advertising, a lot of sameness perhaps, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, how memorable are, are, are the ads as well that, that get presented there? Is the creative that good?
0: Uh, that's a moot point. Um, look, I think a lot of it is memorable and just because it's purpose-led doesn't mean it's not worthy of our um, attention. Mm. I mean, I, I go back even further to... Um, my, my point of time where this all kicked off was Fearless Girl, which I think was 2017, something like that. I'm roughly right. So there's, um, that's a purpose campaign, right? In bronze. Mm. It's actually, and I think it won Titanium as well as other Grand Prix, but it's really a media winner, right? Because that idea is all about media placement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm you put that statue anywhere else, it doesn't make, make any sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a couple of things happened in the mix there. It won so much, I think it won four Grand Prix, which is a, a can record, that people stared at it and went, even though there's a financial services company behind it, and by the way, no one can remember who they were, <laughs> to your point. Do you remember? <laughs> it was State Street Capital, but ah. I, I only know that because I'm a geek. If you ask most people, they don't, they don't remember who I remember how you say it, but yeah. I just, yeah. They'll remember Fearless Girl.
1: Yeah, but they might not. They might not have even known it was an ad campaign.
0: But they might know that's for sure. And e- even that, even um, industry commentators have largely forgotten the brand. Mm. So I think that's uh, a really good example of something that looks from the outside. And again, we don't have the detail. Like it was a one-off. Mm. That's simply easier to forget, either because it was the brand wasn't attached enough to the statue or to the case study, um, or because they haven't repeated. The formula. I'm sure. I'm sure they've tried. So I think um, that that for me is uh, the problem in a nutshell. In a way, heroic, creative that we all remember. That I'm sure inspired lots of good stuff, but also inspired quite a lot of um, me too. The other kind of me too, mm. um, which is trying to trying to find a purpose and attach my brand to it and win an award. And there is no um, shame in awarding that work when it's great. So. One of the big favorites for Cannes in 10 days time is um, the last photo out of London for the campaign against living miserably. It is a brilliant campaign, and no one's gonna say no to that campaign winning at least a gold. Mm. I think the fear I hear from people is that, that the pendulum has simply swung too far away from kind of the mindless 30 second ads that, uh, that do a lot of heavy lifting. Mm. So, I, so I loved seeing that Twix campers spot where the campers are contemplating their snack at the same time as the bears are contemplating their snack. and The the mood music in the industry, I think, is firstly, can we just have that richer mix of work? Yes, award the purpose stuff, but yes, find a way to the great stuff that pays the mortgage. Mm. Um, But also, can we just make sure that we're not using our creative skills to greenwash Rather than using our creative skills to sort of more profoundly change business, so mm-hmm. I think those those are the things that are in the ether around can this year yeah it's interesting you bring up greenwashing.
1: I was going to ask I mean last year the sustainability aspect was highlighted significantly at can due to um, a number of protesters um, has anything changed between last year and and this year that would be caused to Uh, for protesters not to show up again this year and and make a a, a stand for for what they believe in omar
2: no this is the easiest prediction i'll ever make you are absolutely going to have just stop oil and or greenpeace protesting at the palace again um and you know it, it's become rather um it's something we expect there will be a protest at can but it, you know it will definitely be over a group so called greenwashing this time again and i th- i think it, i think it's really interesting um i think there's a there's a why the, the whole greenwashing debate fascinates me because who who are, who who is going to enable us as an economy as a society to transition out of fossil fuels if not for big energy companies Mm-hmm. And there's this rather reductive conversation about, oh, if, you, if, you're, if you're an ad agency or a media agency, you shouldn't be taking money from oil producers. Well, you know, they're, they're not going on TV because they can't. They're not going on TV talking about where your nearest petrol station is or how wonderful fossil fuels are. They're talking about how they're transitioning. Now, the qu- the greenwashing comes down to, are they being fair about how they communicate? But they are doing it, and if they're not doing it, um, are there really, you know, who's your plucky independent startup that's doing that? There aren't many, um, so I, you know, it's as ever this industry suffers from rather reductive conversations, and I think if when it if and when it does happen, I want to see from this industry who are the voices that are strong enough to come out and say that. Who from IPG, WPP, all these massive companies are going to be brave enough to say something like that? Because you know they're taking the money, they might as well own it.
0: Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is, um, again, this is a few years old, but Business Roundtable, which is, um, I think I've got the name correct, it's the U.S. Sort of business trade body, the highest form of U.S. business lobby. They've pretty much changed the definition of successful business to be one that includes in, incorporates proper sustainable practice. So if you're you're a CEO of a big branded business or a CEO of a holding group, that's what the markets are telling you to do. That's what Larry Fink is telling you to do, the single biggest investment fund in the world. So it is happening. It's just happening slowly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I, I trust in business to get there eventually. And meanwhile, advertising is an easy target. I agree with you, Omar.
2: Mm. yeah it, it kind of has some interesting outcomes as well um last summer um we were there were, there was an event at um outside um ipg uh, ipg media brands office that's opposite the old bailey central london and you know having some drinks with people that work at the agency um gossiping etc and there's this there was this one chap at one of these agencies i won't name him but you know he he has a he, baked within his role he is kpi to kind of do more purposeful things internal comms and talking to clients about the purposeful things that the, the company is doing um which is great but you know um be, being slightly inebriated and feeling in a cheeky mood you know I, I you know try and play devil's advocate so well at the end of the day you're there to make money to create value for the brand they employ you at the end of the day mm. um and you know genuine look on his face is one of disgust. Like you know, the you know this this person was a bit younger than I am, um, very much of the opinion that no, I work in this industry because I want to make society a better place, um, not because I'm just here to create advertising, God forbid. And I think that's really, really interesting. And I dare say, you know, when, when you were um, you know, running Fallon Lawrence, you wouldn't have had many people that say that. And I had it actually the last time I was in Cannes in 2019, I met a lot of the young Lions winners, and it was exactly the same sort of thing. You know, oh, you know, what? So, what do you hope to do when you, when you graduate and you work in advertising? Do you want to create finance for nike you know i'm I'm a child of the 90s where all i remember finance by nike and funny ads by tango and all the rest of it no it's the same sort of chat like no society has a a lot of problems and i want to use the power of advertising to make society better Mm. this is increasingly the generation that we have working in this industry i mean what do you think lawrence is
0: it well i I totally recognize that's the truth and it's different to my generation um uh, I've seen a lot of people move client-side actually in search of the same thing. And I think um, you can do a lot more, you can be much more influential managing a brand, being inside an organization and helping them to chart a new path than you can from the outside as the agency. Um, That's just an employment truth. Um, I think ad agencies do amazing things and do amazing Pro-social causes, you know, um, whether that's recruiting nurses or fundraising for Macmillan, it doesn't, you know, that's a separate podcast. You know, Mm -hmm. advertising does a lot of good. It's not, it is not by definition a bad thing. So it already does a lot of good for clients who pay it to advertise their good causes. I think the trouble is if you have a sort of surfeit of um, uh, sort of pro-social instinct you can end up attaching wonderful purposes to brands that don't really have it in their DNA, and in their makeup, and actually mm-hmm. aren't going to do any more about it than badge the sandwich, you know, in Pride Week. Um, so I think I think we've got to find a way to bottle that spirit, which is going to save the planet, right? Mm. But, 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 but attach it to meaningful, long-running, heavy lifting. Rather than a one-off campaign.
1: Mm. Obviously, the, the the sort of challenge of a lifetime for many young people working in the industry, right? How how to do that, um, and, and not one that we're gonna be able to solve in our little podcast necessarily, but uh, uh, something that to certainly think about as Can goes on. Um, but Lawrence, before I shift gears into another topic, I wanted to give you the the final word on on the sort of broader effectiveness discussion um, as it relates to Can. How can media and creative work together, be it at CAN, be it outside of CAN, uh, to create more effective advertising?
0: Wow, that's an enormous question, um, and <laughs> probably one that in the end uh, has a sort of a small answer too. I mean, I, I actually think CAN is a great moment for creative and media agencies to stare at the very best work because it invariably. Has a creative and a media component, or you can't, can't work out whether it's a creative idea, a media idea, a social idea, or a PR idea. Um, there's a couple of things in the mix uh, this year. There's a there's a wonderful Lacoste campaign called Unexpected Encounters, mm. which is people who realise they're in the same. Uh, lacoste shirt or lacoste sliders it's really beautifully shot and there's some particularly good outdoor which has been built to the creative idea so it's a smart media agency going well if it's unexpected encounters of people we should we should be buying billboards at crossroads uh, yeah it kind of so- sounds obvious when i when i say it but if you look at the case study and you'll see okay that's a media idea building off a creative idea in, in perfect sync There's an idea from New Zealand, which is shortlisted for Titanium for a life insurance company, and they basically sponsored New Zealand's true crime drama. The victim, each time at the end of the show, comes back to life. Yeah just to wish that they had had better life insurance or life insurance so it's actually the characters from the show that died is, is bringing you the commercial message mm. I mean that, if that's not breaking down the wall between creative and media I don't, I don't know what is so I, I think it, I think it's there in the great campaigns and if I, if I was running an agency team I'd get my creative teams media teams and my, my brand management team in the room to go we're going to spend a couple of hours going through this stuff and remind ourselves what good looks like and have the conversation about you know what what, what gave that campaign its strength. So the reason I say it's a it's a big ask with a small answer is in in the end the single best thing you can do is just keep talking to each other. And I and I do worry. My experience is only of a creative agency side, but to Omar's point, I used to have the media guys and they were guys running alongside me, briefing the creatives, being in the first presentation presenting and commending it back to the client. That, that was how we lived and breathed in those days. And media people were incredibly um, fluent with creative opportunities, uh, as well as um, you know, the media plan or the media buy. And I think that, that's a really difficult thing to keep going when holding group practice has encouraged um, sort of more siloed working. And mm. I, I miss that. Mm. So I'd like to shift gears here briefly
1: and ask about um, Reuters latest digital news report came out the day of this recording on the 14th of June. Uh, I'm going to throw some numbers at the both of you and would sort of just like to gauge your reactions. Um, First, just 33% of Brits and 32% of Americans say they trust news most of the time. 9% of the UK population say they paid for online news in the last year. 41% of Brits say they sometimes or often actively try to avoid the news, and 43% of Brits say they are very or extremely interested in news, down from 70% in 2015, just eight years ago. Lawrence, to my mind, these numbers look a bit dire uh, for the state of news media, but tell me, and and I know that you, I'm sure, didn't read the full 160-page report that came out this morning, but... Is there, are there any silver linings perhaps in the state of news media specifically at the moment, uh, especially from, from the perspective perhaps of, of advertisers? I, you know, I hear a lot about how th- there's continued support that wants to be had, but you perhaps uh, have a different idea.
0: I, I think the only silver lining is that we've spotted it. And I think, mm. um, you know, it, democracy is in peril. You know, you don't, you, I've got no monopoly own wisdom on that one but uh, we saw what happened in Capitol Hill we see what's happened with our politics and in the last few years and I think healthy journalism has always been part of the democratic health of a nation and it's been uh, in I, I'm trying not to say free fall but it's been in gradual decline for the last decade or so um, the, the quality of journalism, uh, the resources that even the very best can muster to um, create investigations and you know, hold, uh, hold power accountable. So the silver lining is that I think uh, brands are waking up to the fact that their media choices can influence that context for better or for worse. And I think you'll see that will become more of a consideration for more people over the next few years? where Where is our money flowing to? What are we accidentally funding? Or what are we accidentally defunding? Mm. So I think that's happening. And maybe that's the way that the new generation can have more influence, actually, is to start working out, well, hold on. Media is a big business. And it's highly influential. And our advertising dollars shape the media environment of the future. So maybe we do something about that.
1: Mm. I just want to read a, a little bit from the reports Executive Summary says, quote, Even as a few winners are doing well in a challenging environment, many publishers are struggling to convince people that their news is worth paying attention to, let alone paying for. It continues, In the longer term, our data suggests that significant shifts in audience behavior driven by younger demographics are likely to kick in, including a preference for more accessible, informal, and entertaining news formats, often delivered by influencers rather than journalists. Omar, it's a tricky situation because in part it stems from an apparent lack of interest in harder news among especially younger people, as well as a lack of willingness to to pay for quality news content. Uh, You've been a journalist for many years, but uh, uh, I'm curious to get your insights as well on on these sort of broader trends, especially among young people, as Lawrence also pointed out.
2: As Lawrence says, you know, are are democracies such as they are Taken a beating by malevolent forces, and we don't need to go into that too much. Every everyone knows who they are, <laughs> um, and I think there there's obviously a a a micro problem if I can call it that of ownership of media. To to the ownership of media is too concentrated, um, and that is a new story. But I think what. Is the newest story is we're, we're seeing this latest iteration of the internet publishing play out where there is so much choice now and there is so much noise that number one, it's easy to get distracted, and number two, when we're reliant on algorithms instead of people. Um, with reputations to protect to actually you know make decisions about what content we see and how we see it against which context we see it then you're just going to get served more and more clickbaits more and more stuff that you don't you know you, you've got more reason to distrust and
1: and that's um, all the free stuff as well you know if you if you have the ability or want to pay for it then perhaps you can avoid some of it but most people apparently don't want to pay
2: yeah. So I'm 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 assuming I don't know the ins and outs of this survey, but I assume this is a very big survey yeah. sample that they've commissioned, and it's you know um, allowing for a wide um, demography, um, wide breadth of people. Um, but, you know, generally it's very easy to ignore news nowadays. And then when you are aware of news, you kind of hear about the malevolent forces and people talk about Brexit and how the country was sold a lie. And then you get into these elitist arguments and you just said yourself, people can actually pay for quality news. You can have your New York Times subscription. You can have your Financial Times subscription. And it's fine. Hasn't it always been that way where the elites have you know more access to quality, in air quotes, information? Um, so I think I think this is a problem. This is a market failure that we need to correct. I mean, something that we still doesn't get talked about enough. And I, you know, worked as a local journalist for nearly five years. You know, local journalism is on life support in this mm. country, and there is a huge market failure where historically, well, at least in the 20th century, local journalists provided so much value for society in terms of almost acting as you know uh, freelance police, holding councils to account holding police to account and that's gone away because interest has gone away but also because the the economics is broken so you know there's been some movement on this by you know the bbc being made to pay facebook being shamed into pay but ultimately the government at some point if we want to save local journalism where a lot of you know historically the trust trust has been higher um that needs to be funded
1: by the state Hmm. i mean it's a completely it's a pl- reasonable argument, you would say. I think we were talking about this separately earlier. We talk about these things all the time between the two of us, um, how normally with any other market failure, the, the government would, would step in, and, and this appears to be some sort of market failure where demand for, for local news doesn't appear to be done through, through paying for it necessarily, uh, or is just not paid attention to altogether. But uh, it's still very important for the health of democracy, I think both of you guys have mentioned.
2: Yeah. And spoiler alert, it's probably only going to get worse as well, because, you know, um, a lot of the, you know, um, not just can next week, but a lot of the chat in our industry is about the impact of artificial intelligence or generative mm-hmm. AI. Yeah. And so, you know, you're, you're already, you know, I've, you know, I'm interviewing Belinda Barker, who runs the World Media Group um, at can. And they're doing a session on generative AI. And you know, the, the publishers which make up their organization, they're incredibly worried about what Google's Bard has been doing already in terms of scraping content, not just from freely available content, but actually stuff that's behind paywalls. Mm. So there's number one the copyright issue, mm. but number two, when we start having you know all these copyrights and creating all these crap made for advertising websites just to, you know, get SEO rankings up. Um, you you are now going to move from a model where you have generative AI kind of swallow all the stuff that humans have been creating over the years, quality journalism, and they're just going to be swallowing all the generative AI stuff as well. Mm. So the amount of noise that's already a problem is going to get worse and worse and worse. And, you know, crap in, crap out. There's going to be even more crap in and even more crap out. What's that going to do to
1: trust? Mm. You're making uh, journalism seem like a really great career choice for, for me uh, as a young journalist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a great time to be running a publication that covers the media industry as well. Yeah, yeah. That is very true. You've got to um, you've got to find the optimists because I think they, they have the solution. So I, I was talking to Sir John Hegarty a couple of weeks ago and he described himself as a prisoner of optimism, which um, is just a great um, turn of phrase, isn't it? But I think we have to see the possibilities because you... Otherwise, you can talk yourself into a real uh, state of despair. There there has to be something even the advertising business can do, let alone the media business in its own uh, new form, that, that contributes positively to this rather than negatively. There has to be. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think on that point, you know, the the, ad- the Advertising Association currently um, to improve talent retention in the sector um, wants is, is doing this pl- plan to advertise advertising. And maybe more work needs to be done on advertising, promoting journalism um, more broadly, um, because we don't want it to be the preserve of the elite. That has gotten worse over the years. Um, some, you know, journalism is something that essentially anyone can do in an age where anyone can self-publish. Um, is there is there more that we can do as a society to encourage you know more kind of organic journalism? You know, we talk about Twitter and Arab Spring and how that democratized journalism. Well, it hasn't really panned out like that. But is there more thinking, more creativity that we can do to enable that? That that might help. Mm. And
0: ha- how do we harness that generational urge to? make the world a better place and to leave their generation's, you know, footprint on the planet for it, for it to be a better one than my generation leaves behind. There's, there's gotta be something in there. How do, you know?
2: Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Jack? I mean, you, know, you, you cover publishing for us. I mean, you actually written quite a lot about new publishing models and how the market is trying to do things differently. Um, what's,
1: what's your sense going forward? Yeah, well, it's really difficult to, I think, not be a pessimist. Um, but I feel that way about a lot of, a lot of things, personally, as, as a cynic and also as a young person. I think a lot of young people feel, feel this way. Um, I completely agree, though. Um, there, there does need to be a, perhaps some sort of promotional aspect of, here's how you can be a journalist. Anyone can be a journalist. There's not, um, uh, you know, there's training, of course, and there's standards that, that everyone should, should aspire to it and make sure that they uh, uh, follow. But as you say, I mean, even before I, I took this job, I started, you know, blogging or writing on you know, Substack. And that's just for my own little circle of friends that, that bothered to follow me, which is a very small circle. But I was still providing them, you know, maybe my perspective on, on, on the day's events. And I think everyone who's somewhat informed, although I'm learning it's uh, maybe fewer people than I would like to imagine, has those viewpoints, has something to say, um, and there's value in, in hearing that speech. Um, and I think young people are are discovering everyday new ways to talk about things. You know, TikTok is known for mostly comedy and humor, but I think something like 6% uh, of people around the world say they use TikTok for news as well. It's a small number, but it's grown from 1% just a year ago. So, you know. Maybe we need to be jumping on on TikTok, or or I need to be jumping on TikTok, or something oh, to that effect. Great, I can see you do. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's real, it's real. For, for anyone who knows me, knows that that's definitely not going to happen. But there are those opportunities that do exist. You know, it's a state of flux for the industry, but the money will inevitably, in my opinion, follow quality. So um, well, at least my, that's my hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tie a bow on on that conversation. Now, though, so I'd like to move on to uh, a new little quick hits segment where I'll ask the both of you some rapid fire questions uh, on recent news from around the industry. So first, Group M's this year, next year report was published this week, and it noted that the UK is expected to lag the rest of the world in terms of ad revenue growth. In 2023, Group M's global president of business intelligence, Kate Scott Dawkins, attributed the comparatively worst figures in Part to the effects of Brexit on the economy. Lawrence, how should media and marketing react to that kind of analysis?
0: Um, gosh, uh, but well, firstly, we're taking it seriously. That sounds correct, that analysis. Um, it, it also does sound depressing and I, I don't want to disentangle uh, how we got here because it's, it's not helpful, it's not constructive. I think you just have to plan for that scenario. You know, um, ad ad revenue really has been in uh, good odour for many years because what people like uh, Meta and Google and others have allowed is for small brands and small businesses to flourish. They took away the advertising barrier to entry. You know, digital did that generally, but digital media did that especially. And so a lot of the growth you've seen over the last decade or so, is is additional advertising revenue coming through new players? I, that's going to continue, I think, despite all the uh, various changes around privacy and, and the like. Um, so I think that's that sounds like the, that's the context we're going to be operating in a relatively low growth economy, where brands need to work even harder than they do today to keep their heads above water or to win. Mm.
1: Uh, also, according to Group M, the advertising industry is already using artificial intelligence to inform half of all ad revenue. Group M expects this to surpass two thirds of ad revenue by 2028. You both already mentioned AI during the conversation, um, and I'm sure we're gonna hear a lot more about it at Cannes. We've featured pieces on the Media Leader lately about how it's impacting both creativity and how it could impact media planning. Omar, thinking far ahead, five years time from now, What's the biggest impact AI will have on media and advertising?
2: Oh my God you've just asked me this question because you're gonna save this segment and you're gonna play it in five years time because I'm gonna be absolutely wrong uh, <laughs> and you're, you're, you're gonna embarrass me um, presumably um, you know when I'm when, I, when I'm dead and it's my funeral or something like that um um what's going to be i okay i've already mentioned the short term you're just going to have an explosion of noise because i think that's the quickest route to kind of show that your 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 ai functionality is doing something we're we're already seeing it frankly i think in the long term this is where i am um going to be positive for a change um generally you know it's like it's like any new technology, really. At its heart, you know, we don't kind of we're not still whining about, you know, the the coach and horses industry. Um, when you know we're taking taxis to the airport, um, you know there there is a there is a massive amount of opportunity in all aspects of advertising and media to use AI to create something very powerful. And like all technology is fundamentally supposed to us to do, to free humankind from boring, mundane, repetitive tasks and to actually actualize our lives into doing something more creative, more spontaneous, dare I say more spiritual. Um, this, is, this is a rather long way of saying that I do think there are going to be opportunities, but we don't know what they are yet. So mm. I'm going to cleverly not make a prediction, but do that virtuously because... I I think that the 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 pitch is being rolled now for us for something quite exciting to happen, and it's very easy to talk about the short term job impacts, but long term creative destruction. The formula always is that it actually creates more jobs net in the long term. We don't know how long that long term is, but I'm quite positive. I'm quite p- positive about it. Mm.
0: It's also for every wave, there's a counter wave. So this latest wave of automation will also bring more focus on humanity and the very best communication is where a, a human is touched by something another human did. And I I don't think that will ever go away. I think that truth has been with us for centuries and longer. Mm-hmm. And it's in all the best work that you see, it's it's when the sort of curtain gets, you know, pulled away and you just see it was it's someone on that side of the fence trying to make me smile on this side of the fence
2: well that's exactly right i mean go back to can there was a there was a i'm pretty sure it won a grand prix um the the van gogh um the the ai well i don't know if it was ai i don't want to miss but it was something it was an automated it was a machine that created a van gogh and that oh, wasn't that amazing that it could do that and you don't really think about it anymore and i don't know who's got that hanging up in the you know it's paid 10 million pounds to have that hanging up in their bedroom mm. whereas you know Someone might potentially do that for a scribble that the great artist, the great master did. You know, it's as Lawrence says, what matters more, I think, to humans is the communication, the idea that has been created and executed by another human, because inevitably there is a story behind why he or she did that, the history around why he or she did that. A machine, as impressive as the execution is, humans want to connect to other humans
1: Mm, especially in a more isolated world Uh, I feel like a lot of people feel isolated especially during the pandemic some of that hasn't been lost yet Um, we haven't come back together necessarily in the same way so i i'm, I'm sympathetic to, to both of those arguments
2: although I, I should point out sorry this isn't good for your quick hit but this is the 10th anniversary of the movie her the spike jonesy movie her which i highly recommend mm. to anyone who hasn't seen it where joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his ai operating system computer played by scarlett johansson which is a wonderful film for many reasons but
1: yeah recommend that that, that could happen maybe <laughs> that could happen okay uh, perhaps that is the embarrassing uh, thing i'll call you out on in, in five years <laughs> Um, last question Uh, in his column this week Ray Snoddy reflected on the imminent sale of the Telegraph by speculating that its bidders could include anyone from the Daily Mail and General Trust to GB News owner Sir Paul Marshall to some quote trophy hunter unquote from the Middle East Uh, Lawrence do you have any prediction uh, on what might occur with Telegraph Media Group but perhaps more broadly what does the sale of such a a major publication mean for, for the British news publishing industry
0: well I, the fear is that it's another historically robust broadsheet and actually very good digital offering um that's been sort of sandpapered away now for several years in terms of its quality and its resources the fear is that it it falls into the the wrong hands or is or is commoditized or whatever whatever path a less benign owner takes it down the hope is that Someone comes in like Bezos did with the Washington Post and goes, this is an important pillar of UK democracy. And I'm going to give the editor due space to rebuild it around uh, editorial and not just commercial lines. Because I can, you know, as, as a reader and a one-time columnist, I can feel that it's, it's been sucked into a sort of promotional vacuum rather than being proudly editorially led. It's, it's, it's the microcosm of everything we've been talking about, right? That the editor's job now isn't uh hold uh the government accountable mm. chase down expensive scandals follow the uh, sexual harassment clues uh, at, at a hedge fund you know, manager it's, it's been dragged to sort of a promotional um click uh path Mm -hmm. and they're not alone those forces are incredible but the the hope is that it's in play and it ends up in the right hands Mm -hmm.
1: i think we'll have to leave the conversation at that thanks so much lawrence and omar for coming on to chat we talked a lot about can today if you're there please say hello to omar and the rest of the team not myself you can email me um but everyone else will be at the media leader cafe more details about that are on our website Thank you so much for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. You can find and listen to all our episodes and see more details on our plans for can, again, on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at the Media Leader, I'm executive producer Jack Benjamin. See you next time.